Tell me if you've ever been in this kind of situation. You are sharing with someone your deepest feelings, what you're going through. Maybe this is your venting session. And you are pouring out all the details to that person, how you're feeling. And then this person who you're talking to, with good intentions, who might be a little tired of all of your spewing uh, or sense you're fishing for some kind of advice, this person spurts out one quick piece of advice. Just pray about it. Just trust God. Just read your Bible more. Just come to church. Just lay it at the Lord's feet. Just remember God is in control. That little word, just, is kind of deflating, isn't it? It takes the complicated and makes it falsely simple. It takes the difficult and makes it falsely easy. It takes the significant and makes it falsely insignificant. When we hear the advice that tags on the word just at the beginning of it, it's like we automatically tune it out. Most of the advice that matters like singleness and parenting come in these forms. Just. Now, sure, sometimes we've forgotten the advice that comes after this word just and we need a reminder. But, you know, most of the time we need help because we know the advice that comes after the word just, but it's really hard. We don't know how it, what it looks like. Someone tells you, just find your contentment in Christ. Well, friend, would you acknowledge that my struggle right now is, is real and an actual struggle? So when we hear someone put on that word just in front of a piece of advice, we might hear that person subtly saying that what we're going through is not complicated or it is not difficult. And it actually has a simple and easy solution. Just do this. Now, what comes after the word just might be right advice, but we need help with what it looks like to do what comes after the word just. We need to internalize all of the reasons why we should follow the advice that comes after the word just. We need the resources outside of ourselves to do what comes after that word just. The first two words of the section in the book of James we're in today is be patient. You notice it does not say, just be patient. Just be patient by itself would be one of those other pieces of advice we would never want to hear. Of course, be patient. Yeah, duh, I've heard that since I was a kid. But we need something more than that. Well, thankfully, the word just does not appear before those two words, and there's a lot that comes after those two words. And if we pay attention, really, in all of the Bible, the Bible never gives pat answers, never gives platitudes. It's no different here. The Lord is not interested in us putting on a fake face and being patient by grinning and bearing it. No. The Lord is interested in deep patience to the level of our hearts. A patience that does not run on our own resources, but is fueled by the endless supply of God's resources, his proven faithfulness, his promises, his character, his power. So we will not read today, just be patient. There will be much more. And we read from James chapter 5, 
James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. You'll find it on page 1013 if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big, bold numbers. Uh, so chapter number 5 and the verse numbers are the little small numbers that come after that. So we're looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the main point for today, find it in your bulletin, you can fill it out, uh, is that patience comes from a heart that's driven more by the truth it knows than the pressures it feels. Patience comes from a heart that's driven more by the truth it knows than the pressures it feels. Now, friends, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Patience is really, really hard, but it's possible. It's possible not ultimately because of us, it's possible because of the Lord. So we'll organize our time together by going through four different parts of this passage. We'll see the commands, we'll see the examples, the temptations, and the power. The commands, the examples, the temptations, and the power. It's my prayer today that the Lord will use his word to build us, to build in us a deep, resolved, joyful, and expectant patience. So let's begin with the commands. Here we want to focus in on the positive commands James is giving his readers. That is what he's telling them to do. We've already noticed the first one of these. This comes in the very first two words, be patient. And if you're like me, you are already in trouble. James is going to put some skin and bones on this command, but we can define it some right now. Be patient. You know, the most trusted biblical Greek lexicon defines this word patience to mean to remain tranquil while waiting. The dictionary definition, to remain tranquil while waiting. Now I'm not sure how much we can read into it, but the original word has the prefix macro in it. Interesting. One of the ways we're able to remain tranquil while waiting is because we are able to look at our situation at a macro level, not just get consumed in the micro details. See the big picture, even when the details don't make sense. We'll have more on that soon. Be patient. Remain tranquil while waiting. You know, from that definition, we find that patience is more than just waiting. We often don't have a choice as to whether or not we have to wait. You know, for example, talking to several of you at the church, your contractor was supposed to show up at your home two weeks ago. You have no choice whether or not to wait. The question becomes not whether or not we will wait, but how we will wait. 
What will our attitude be when we wait? So think back to James's book, James's letter here, and the readers, who he's writing to. How are they forced to wait? Uh, you'll notice that after the command to be patient, there's this word, therefore. So I've heard it said many times, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it's there for. Um, James calls to patience here because of the situation he lays out in verses 1 to 6. We noticed this last week. Most of James's readers were poor, and they were oppressed by very powerful, very wealthy people and kept in their poverty with no way out. So in other words, the main situation James's readers were waiting was poverty that seemed inescapable. And indirectly, poverty as a result of being persecuted for their faith. That's what they're waiting for. That's their situation. Situation forced them to wait, and now the question is, how will they wait? What will their attitude be when they wait? So this is important to remember when we read the Bible, or just read James here, talking about patience. James, like the rest of the Bible, he's not one to say that our circumstances don't matter. Hmm, he doesn't dismiss them. James just got done calling out the rich people who oppressed the Christians here he's writing to. But even though their situation makes waiting tougher, their situation, notice, is not what ultimately determines how patient they are. You know who determines that? They do. They determine how patient they are. They are the ones why else would James call them to be patient? Practically, friends, this means that a statement like, you're making me impatient, is not true. Now, it doesn't mean to excuse all the annoying stuff that your family and friends do. But it is to say, you are the one, we are the ones who determine how patient or impatient we are. We are the ones. Not our situation not other people. The other positive command in this passage, we have be patient. The other positive command comes in verse eight. I wonder if you could see it. It says, establish your hearts. Once again, James is concerned with more than what's going on on the surface. He's concerned at what's going on at the deepest level of our hearts. So that same Greek lexicon I talked about defines this word as to cause to be inwardly firm or committed. What's going on inside? Establish your hearts. And we could say that much of James's letter can be summed up in this command. Establish your hearts. The reason why James's readers' actions didn't line up with what they believed is because they had hearts that were not established. They had hearts that were divided. Divided between trying to serve themselves and the world and trying to serve the Lord at the same time. So remember back in chapter 1, there's the double-minded man. Remember in chapter 2, there's a preferential treatment that shows the divisions in their hearts. Remember in chapter 3, the speech that blesses God and curses people who are made in the likeness of God. Divisions unestablished. Chapter 4, the passions that war within them. Even earlier in chapter 5, we see here established hearts, but contrast that to the rich people who had fattened hearts. Chapter 5, verse 5. So unestablished hearts, weak hearts at our, at our very core, divided, 
It explains all the ways that their actions didn't line up with what they believed. So again, we want to remember the situation that James is writing to. This situation forced these people to wait. Didn't have a choice. And while waiting, they were to be patient. While waiting, they were to establish their hearts. So just like the response to be patient, no matter what's going on around us, we can control what's going on in us. No matter what's going on around us, we can control what's going on in us. Isn't it interesting here? James does not tell his readers to pray that their situation will change. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's not that James would disagree with that prayer. We're going to see next week that he prays along those same lines. He's going to pray for healing. But what James is first concerned about is praying for their hearts, that their hearts would be established no matter the situation, even when situations are tough. So just a reminder, friends, God cares about our comfort, our safety, our physical protection and well-being. But you know what he cares about more is our holiness and our faithfulness and our obedience to him and our hearts. So we said a couple weeks ago that we do not drift toward holiness. We cannot take our hands off the wheel and expect to stay in the lane of holiness. Holiness. We need to keep our hands on the wheel. Establishing our hearts does not just happen. You do not have the Nissan Altima with driver assistance. Maybe the Holy Spirit is that. But we see this reflected all over the Bible, that we need to establish our hearts to take care of what's going on in us. One of the Apostle Paul's prayers is that God would strengthen believers in their inner being. One uh, place that is powerfully talks about this is Psalm 131. Psalm 131 verse 2 says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, I have calmed and quieted my soul. So all of the anxieties, uncertainties, insecurities that come when we wait. Like babies, those make us fussy. Calming and quieting our souls, establishing our hearts is saying, to all of our desires and fears and irritabilities and so on that wreck us on the inside, calming those. And friends, like weaning, that takes time, doesn't it? So the commands, at least the positive ones, are to be patient, establish your hearts. Friends, since the world is still messed up, fallen, sinful, not as it should be, and since we are still messed up, fallen, sinful, not as we should be, we need these constantly. We need patience to establish our hearts constantly, not just sometimes, but all the time. But now, what does this look like? What does patience, establishing our hearts, look like in real life? Put some flesh and bones on it. You know, James keeps going. It's interesting. James doesn't give more propositional truths. He doesn't give a step-by-step process. You know, here are 12 steps to a patient heart. We could probably put 12 steps together from the Bible. 
He doesn't even say like, hey guys, here is a church program that will fix your patient hearts. No, he goes on to give them examples, real people. Now James's tactics here, they remind us that we need more than just consuming teaching. We need more than just consuming sermons. As vital as that is, we need more than to hear the word of God taught. We need to see the word of God lived out in the lives of other people. We need that. Friends, that's one of the gifts God has given to us in the church. God, God's best for us is not just that we would consume sermons. It's not that we would just listen to sermons at home. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but God's best for us is to hear the word of God alongside other people and live out the word of God alongside other people so that we can have real life models of things like patience. So y'all get to know your church members here, your brothers and sisters here. Get to know models of patience. Y'all get to know Brenda Berkeley, a model of patience. Get to know, I know she will not like me calling her out. Get to know my mom. Donna Barbie, a model of patience. Glory to God. Need more than to hear the word of God, see examples of it lived out. James knows this, a wise pastor. So James gives examples of patience and endurance, and he starts with Old MacDonald. Uh, he doesn't say Old MacDonald. Uh, he gives the example of the farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You know, we can relate to this example to some extent, but it's kind of from a distance. I don't know if any of us are farmers here. Maybe you are. would be interested to know. Uh, but James's readers lived this example. You know, most people back then grew some of, if not all, of their food. So the farmer's work gives us clues into what patience looks like. Some flesh and bones to it. Just think about it. A farmer's work requires waiting. Crops do not rise up instantly. So like farmers, there will be times when we are forced to wait. But again, the question is how we will wait. The farmer, you see, the farmer is patient. He's not panicking. He is patient. He is composed inside. Why? because he knows the sweetness of what lies ahead. He's not just waiting for the fruit of the earth. Notice, he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. The farmer's patient. He's not panicking. He's composed inside. Why? Because he's seen God's faithfulness in the past. He knows when the rain seasons are. And he's seen God send them before. So even though uh, the farmer works and there doesn't seem to be any growth, he knows there is more to the story than what's going on. Other places in the Bible we can think of also use the work of the farmer to show us how to wait. So while there's much out of the farmer's control while he has to wait for the crop to grow, he doesn't do nothing while he waits. No, he watches over the seeds. He tends to the garden and to the fields. He persistently cares for it. So here's the same combination James is coming after. Be patient, establish your hearts. You are gonna wait. You have to be patient. You are gonna wait. You need to tend to your hearts during that time. The example of the farmer. 
But he's not done with it examples. You look at verse 10 and the verses after, and I think you could spot at least two more examples here. First, you see the example of the prophets. You see the example of Job. Now, the prophets were those guys who wrote the books of the Bible that we only know because we flipped through them to get to the New Testament. Ouch. James uses the prophets as an example, as those who still benefit us, holding up the truth subtly, friends, that God inspired all of Scripture, not just some of it, all of it. All of it is profitable to us, even the parts that take a little bit more digging, like the prophets. Now, what happened to the prophets? Well, Jeremiah, for example, the men in his hometown hunted him, threw him in prison, threw him in an empty cistern, left him to die. Ezekiel ministered during the period of his life when he lost his wife. The only reason we've ever heard of Daniel is because the guy was deported. Hosea's marriage broke down. And nearly all of the prophets had to see their home be threatened by or even overcome by other nations that were just outright evil. So why did this happen to all the prophets? Look at how James describes them. Who were these prophets? He says they were those who spoke in the name of the Lord. Most of the time, that's the very reason why these prophets suffered. The world around them did not want to hear from God and took it out on those who spoke on God's behalf. So this is the same pattern that applies to Jesus. Friends, it's the same pattern that applies to us, Jesus' followers. So we might think of 2019 in America where we have much blessing, where we might feel more and more social pressures for living out our walk with Christ. But friends, remember, this is not a new phenomenon. There are thousands, hundreds, millions of people who have went before us, who endured opposition. And we might just say, just as a side note, if we never feel social pressures for our walk with Christ, that we might not be walking with Christ. So prophets face pressure for speaking in the name of the Lord. And how do they handle it? Remember, the question is not whether or not we will wait. The question is how we will wait. So what do the prophets do? Well, they endured. They kept speaking in the name of the Lord, even when they suffered. James says, we considered those blessed who remained steadfast. So friends, the prophets' blessing came not because they lived trouble-free lives, but because they lived trouble-full lives and remained faithful in them. Trusting the Lord. James says, this is why we value them. Because they're models of what it looks like to hold on to God. They're models of holding on to the Lord by establishing their hearts. So one of the things when you read the prophets that you're going to notice is that they didn't endure just by grinning and bearing it. They endured by being honest about how they felt, about even how they felt about God about how, what they were going through, that's one way they established their hearts. Not by being numb to it all, but by pressing through in their deepest feelings. So one of the prophets who displayed this powerfully, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, is Habakkuk. Habakkuk. 
Uh, you can read this book in one sitting uh, if you want. You can even read it this afternoon. It would be a great way to spend this afternoon. Habakkuk, if you want to see, starts on page 785 in the Pew Bible. Uh, so Habakkuk began his book by saying, O Lord, how long shall I cry to help? And will you not hear? He feels the pressures of what's going on. He's literally feeling the pressure of waiting. How long, God, is this going to go on? And what does Habakkuk do? He takes this to God. How long, O oh Lord? In doing this, he's able to end his book by saying this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. All these pressures around him and Habakkuk can settle what's going on in him. A model of establishing his heart. Craziness around him, composure in him. The prophets. James isn't done. Seen the farmer, seen the prophets. And next we're going to see Job. Job lost everything. Job lost his family. Job lost his home. Job lost his health. Job even lost some friends. And why did it all happen to Job? Surely he must have done something wrong. Well, that's what his friends thought too. His friends were like the counselors we talked about at the beginning. You know, just do this, Job, and it'll all be better. But like the prophets, Job suffered not because he was faithless. Job suffered because he was faithful. James says that Job is another example of perseverance in suffering. Now, I wonder if, if you've read the book of Job ever. Chapter after chapter, you are going to read Job complaining and whining. Seriously. And you think this guy is the model of steadfastness and perseverance? Again, it's a reminder whether it's the prophets, whether it's Job. Part of enduring is crying out to the Lord. Part of enduring is being honest about what we're feeling, about what we're going through. What Job and other examples show us is that when we wait, we just keep crying out to God. It's not just we bemoan, we keep taking it to the Lord. Persistence. So friends, friends in the middle of a trial, have you gone prayerless? Oh, keep praying. Keep seeking the Lord. That's endurance. And tell him how you feel. Keep seeking the Lord. So for Job, though he constantly felt the pressures from what's happening to him, Job, he is able to establish his heart in him. Pressures outside, established inside. At one point, he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. What a stunning statement. Why would he trust a God who seems to be hurting him? Well, he says later, which we read uh, from Job 19, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold in another. My heart fails within me. While Job waits for relief, he established his heart 
he can calm the storm inside of him. While he feels the pressures on the outside, he can have calm on the inside because he pursues what he knows, what he knows to be true. He can keep holding on to God because he knows his Redeemer lives. Job could keep going because he expected someone to stand on his behalf before God, a Redeemer. You know, what Job looked forward to did not fully come about in his lifetime. The story ends without all of Job's questions answered. The story ends simply with a deeper knowledge of God for Job, a knowledge of God's compassion and mercy and power that comes to those who hold on to God while they wait. But you know, friends, what Job looked forward to, we look back to. We have such a redeemer that Job believed in. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the redeemer, who is not averse to suffering, but suffered himself, dying in our place. He is the redeemer who lives, who died and rose again, and who lives to stand, to intercede on behalf of his people, pleading to the Father his wounds, that he, uh, his blood shed for us. We have such a redeemer. Oh, friend, do you have such a redeemer? So we're filling in the picture. James's readers have no choice but to wait. But how are they going to wait? That is the key question. Though they can't control what happens outside of them, they can control what's going on in them. They must be patient. They must establish their hearts. James, the wise pastor that he is, gives them models of patience and establishing their hearts. Whether it's the farmer, the prophets, or Job. These are models of those who kept working, kept trusting in God, kept crying out to God, telling God how they feel. Those who are able to settle their hearts holding on to what they know is true. And no matter what happens to them, God has saved them and God will stand for them. So friends, I know what you might be thinking. The end result of this sermon is that you're going to go home and that you will automatically start being patient. Right? For even patience, even getting patience takes patience, doesn't it? We can imagine the protest chant. What do we want? Patience. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> if it was easy to be patient, then more of us would be patient. If it was easy to have settled, established hearts, then most, more of us would have settled, established hearts, composed. If this was easy, James would not have to say anything. So friends, we need to recognize, can you recognize that the default settings of your heart are not patience and composure. Those are not our default settings. And friends, this is not getting better. It's getting worse. You think of uh, our culture around us um, and comparing it to the past. Uh, so some of, some of the great European cathedrals took hundreds of years to build. Can you imagine that? you imagine being one of the first guys who worked on those cathedrals and not seeing it finished? And then today, like I'm a little upset that the new IHOP on Bagley is taking as long as it is to build. <laughs> I mean, impatience is just the air we breathe. We are productive. We are fast. If my meal takes more than three minutes to microwave or if my website takes more than three seconds to load, it feels like an eternity. 
When preparing for the sermon at this point, when I was writing it, I was impatient. I just wanted to be done. It was slow going. (laughs) So friends, the speed of our conveniences makes it even tougher for us when we are forced to wait. The speed we're used to makes it tougher for us when we're forced to wait. But now, just like back then, patience is not easy. We're tempted to respond in many different ways besides patience. So what are those temptations? What makes patience hard? James talks about some of them. In the situation James is writing to, they would be tempted to take this matter into their own hands. They would be tempted to retaliate against the rich people who cheated them and who oppressed them. That same temptation remains for us, the temptation to retaliate. So instead of that, James tells them to be patient. Now, James is the one who just gets walked all over. Remember, James is one who just spoke out against what these rich people were doing. If we take the prophets as an example, or even Jesus as an example, it's not that we ever excuse the wrong stuff that people are doing to us or around us. But no, in this situation, what we cannot do is retaliate. As Peter puts it, we cannot return evil for evil. This is how our worst arguments happen, isn't it? You know, instead of being patient when someone says something we don't like, we snap back and return it with something even harder and harsher. You know, I think of Christian ministry in general and the temptation to take matters into our own hands. That's a real temptation. Part and parcel to preaching the word is patience. Paul says it himself. It takes time. We are to be faithful. We're to sow the seed faithfully, help people follow the Lord. But only God can give the growth in certain areas. Only God saves. Only God sanctifies. So the temptation when that's slow on our standards is to take matters into our own hands and compromise in various ways, maybe watering down the message, maybe trying to attract people via gimmicks or something else. Oh, that's a larger conversation. But patience is required even in Christian ministry. And there's a temptation to take matters into our own hands when it's slow. So other temptation. In situations that require patience, we'll be tempted to grumble. We'll be tempted to grumble against one another. Just think about when you are under stress, how often do you take it out on other people? How often do you take it out on the people you love the most? Your family members, your friends, even your church, your church family. These are the people who care about us. These are the people who nine times out of ten had nothing to do with the stress you're in. But you respond and lash out against them anyway. Grumble. Now, friends, we remember even another example. Remember the Israelites. The Israelites, after they got out of Egypt, they just left 400 years of slavery in this place. Back-breaking labor. And not a week after they get out, what do they do? They grumbled. And they grumbled against Moses, the guy who let them out. Talking about how Egypt's food was better. Talking about how he led them out just to die. Moses, you hate us. Grumbling. Real temptation when we wait. There are other ones too. Situations that require patience. We will be tempted to give up. We will be tempted to give up. 
situations where we're waiting, we might think that nothing is happening. We're working very hard and we don't see any results. This is confessions of one who quit piano lessons when he was 10 because did not see any results. <laughs> Tempted to give up. A situation where there is no end in sight and it's just straight up hard and we, can't, we think we can't go on anymore. This is a real temptation. We can assume nothing is happening. And you know, friends, giving up also might look like giving in to finding relief in something else. Giving up might look like giving in, not dealing with what's going on in you, and finding relief, perhaps in destructive things like alcohol or pornography, or even neutral things, but just not dealing with what's going on in us. Finding relief in vegging out in front of the television. Finding relief through exercising. That's our relief instead of the Lord. Be careful. Just because we can't see change doesn't mean nothing is happening. We have to remember that truth. Classic example. If you try to watch a tree grow, you will give up and you will get bored. But it is growing. We will be tempted to concentrate on the now with no eye to the big picture and then give up. Real temptations when we wait. Waiting isn't easy. Patience is hard, especially when we are under a lot of pressure. So instead of responding with patience and establishing our hearts, we might retaliate, we might grumble, we might give up. Or James says we might even swear falsely. Curious to give this one, isn't it? It's what James says in verse 12. Now, I don't think James is prohibiting us to swear before a grand jury. Some take this to mean that. Uh, a jury has no way to tell whether or not we mean what we say and have integrity. Uh, James, it might be tough to think of how James applies it to waiting, swearing falsely. But we can picture this scenario. We're under stress, under some big time stress, and we are pleading with God, and we are tempted to bargain with God. God, if you just get me through this, then I will do anything you want. God, if you just get me through this, then I promise I will stop doing this. We can be tempted to make a phony kind of pledge or oath to God during stress. And then when the pressure is off, we go right back to the way we were living. False kind of repentance. Let your yes be yes. So whether it's retaliating, grumbling, giving up, or going back on our word, we show what's actually in our hearts. The pressures that come upon us are like x-rays that reveal what's actually there. The heart behind all these responses is a heart that serves itself and just doesn't believe God. When we respond in these ways, we are saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. What's important is my timing, my reputation, my comfort, my needs, my agenda. Patience is hard because like we said a couple of weeks ago, we turn our desires into demands very often. So when we aren't patient, we effectively say, we are completely in the right. 
my perspective is perfect. And God doesn't know all that he's doing. It's always been bad. It will always be bad. And it is bad right now. And it won't get any better. That's the heart of impatience. So friends, what are you waiting for? What do you have that you don't want? What do you want that you don't have? Another way we can ask this is what stresses you out and how do you cope with that? What stresses you out and how do you cope with that? Think of how James's readers might have answered this. Some of the major problems in their situation. You read the whole book. James's readers had money problems. They had relational problems. They had health problems. That covers a lot of what we go through, doesn't it? Money, relationships, health. And James even opened his letters by talking about what? Trials of various kinds. Fill in the blank with anything you want. We are waiting. Waiting for our situation to get better. Waiting for pressures to end. Waiting for longings to be met. So friends, the question is not whether or not you will wait. The question is how you will wait. For all that's going on outside, will you be able to settle your heart inside? Remember those who went before us, who, who go along us, alongside us in this task in, at church, who kept on crying out to God, who settled their hearts with what they know to be true. But friends, this is not easy. Temptations lay at every side. But we're going to take in all of what James says, try to summarize the perspective. We can say that in our waiting, in our stress, we need to correct our vision. In our waiting, in our stress, we need to correct our vision. Few places we should look to correct our vision. First, we say, look out. Look out. Look out, what you're waiting for might not actually be good for you. Look out, what you get stressed about might not be worth getting stressed about. Look out, you might be wrong. <laughs> Look out, when you're forced to wait, you might lash out, you might take out your frustrations, you might add to the storm inside of you rather than calming it. Look out. <laughs> but second, we say look up. Look up. Ask yourself, who is God, really? Who is God? What's true about him? How does what is true about him speak to my situation? James says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, at times, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He does not say, if you ask God to be, he will be compassionate and merciful. James just says, the Lord is compassionate and, and merciful. My friend, Christian, brother and sister, who is the one who is devoted to care for you? Who is the one who has adopted you into his family? Who is the one who will return and put all things right? Who is the one that holds all things together? Is this not the compassionate and merciful one who does all of this? So calming the inner turmoil comes as we look up and relate to God rightly again. But that's not all. 
We're not done looking. We look out. We look up. And we look back. Look back. James points back to those who went before us. James appeals to what his readers have already experienced. Notice, he says, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. That's past tense, what they've already experienced. So, friends, we not only look up and remember who God is, we look back and remember what God has done. Out of his compassion and mercy, the Father gave his only beloved Son. Out of his compassion and mercy, the Father chose you to believe, though you didn't deserve it. Out of his compassion and mercy, Jesus came to earth, left his throne, lived perfectly, and died for you out of his compassion and mercy. Out of his compassion and mercy, the Holy Spirit gave you faith in Christ and is with you still. Look back, all that God's done for you. Look back to the times when you were convinced when the Lord was not doing anything and then realized all that he was doing. Look back to the times when you were impatient, when you went after the temptations that waiting brings, when you did lash out, when you did snap back, when you did give up, when you were impatient with God. And then look back and remember, for all the times that we were impatient with God, God was patient with us. Even at the very beginning, Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies against him, while we were still impatient. So for those of who don't believe in Jesus who are here this morning, Consider how patient God has been with you. Just consider that for a second. He means for you to look at his patience and turn from living for yourself and run back to him. That's the lesson from patience. And God is ready to forgive. God is ready to make you whole. He has done the work required for it already at the cross. Turn, friend, from living to yourself and to trust in Christ today. So look out, look up, look back. And then we say, look ahead. Look ahead. Friends, James reminds us that we will not have to be patient forever. We won't have to be patient forever. There's an expiration date. Jesus is coming again. One day our faith will be sight. One day all that pains us will be gone. One day our tears will be wiped away. One day all of our toil will be over. One, do one day we will see that the Lord finished what he started. And the harvest will be precious. One day. One day we will be with him. And friends, right now, we are closer to that day than we ever have been before right now. We are in the final stage of God's plan. Jesus came, died, rose again. The Spirit has been given to Jesus's people, and all that is left for Jesus to do is to return. It is close. It can happen at any time. And so we remember God's timetable is not ours. We read about that in 2 Peter. But we know this. Every day, we are one day closer. Every day, we are one day closer. 
So we must look ahead with expectant hope. But we also look ahead in order to be ready for what's ahead. We look ahead in order to be ready for what's ahead. Of course, this is a warning to those who will stand before God without Christ standing in their place. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are in his work to pay for our sins, who are in his perfect life, who are in his resurrection, the Bible says there is no more condemnation for us, nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. So we look ahead and be ready. We need to stand ready before him and remember who God is. He's a loving, merciful, compassionate one who saved us. So look ahead and work toward what your Lord will find delightful at that time. What will the Lord find delightful when when you stand before him? Look ahead. You know an example of what he would find delightful, of what would honor him at that time? Is if you were patient. Look out, look up, look back, look ahead. Having done all that, stand firm. Stand firm, establish your heart. Friends, if all that sounds like a great idea, that you, but it might be just a little too much for you in the moment, you're right. <laughs> it is too much for you. But we do not stand in our own achievements, do we? We stand in the finished work of Christ. We hear Paul from 1 Corinthians. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, the victory over sin and death. Not that we achieved, it's given to us, won by Jesus. And then he says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Stand firm because we don't stand in our own achievements, but in Christ's. Stand firm because we do not stand in our own power. The same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is powerfully at work in Jesus' people. Paul has another prayer. He prays for the Thessalonians. He prays not that they would establish their hearts. He prays that God would establish their hearts. He's the one who does it ultimately. Because of God's work for us in Christ, in his spirit, past, present, future, courage, resolve, composure, steadiness, all those are possible. So friend, what kind of heart work will you do today, this week? Not hard work, heart work. In the pressures and situations that you want changed, in the stresses you have, in the inner turmoil that goes on, how will you handle it? Where will you look? Many of the great hymns of our faith help us with this. Now go back this week, read and sing again. How firm a foundation. My goodness, what words. Summarizes God's words to us as we wait. It says, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not desert to its foes. Read back, sing again before the throne of God above. Remind yourself of what's true. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Well, friends, you have already modeled and built up your patience by listening to this sermon. So thank you. Here is the end 
You may have heard of the famous runner, Eric Liddell. He's a Scottish track star who ran in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, he was a Christian, made famous in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, Liddell's parents grew up as missionaries in China. And after the 1924 Olympic Games, uh, Eric Liddell went back to where he grew up and he became a missionary with the London Missionary Society. Liddell stayed even when China uh, began to fall to communism. In 1943, Liddell and other Westerners were sent to prison in Japan. It was there when Liddell's health began to deteriorate. He had a brain tumor. Couldn't think as sharply as he used to. Laid up in the infirmary. He was close to death, weakened in his mind. He could still establish his heart. He asked if his friends could sing his favorite hymn, Be Still, My Soul. Liddell could bear patiently, as the hymn says, even with a brain tumor, because as the hymn goes on, in every change, he faithful will remain. Every change, God faithful will remain. Be patient, friends. Establish your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak. <laughs> We confess that we need so much help. And God, we confess that we stand before you only because of your patience with us. Because of your grace to us, which you gave. Because of Christ's achievements for us, the Spirit's power in us. God, we need your patience still. Lord, help us. Help us to trust you, to, to wait well for the things we're waiting for. To wait expectantly. Help us to view you rightly, your character rightly. God, cause us to stand. Calm what's going on inside of us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.